Well, you can go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Mark. If you don't have a, um, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of those pew Bibles that hopefully are right in front of you. And this morning, we're going to be in Mark, the fifth chapter, and we're going to do um, what's called running, what they call running commentary, which is I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to just kind of elaborate a little bit on the text. Not that the text necessarily needs me to do that. In fact, in preaching class, they said, don't do running commentary, but we're going to try to prove them wrong um, this morning as we do running commentary. So you'll need your Bible out for at least the the first three-fourths of the message. So keep that out and Again, Mark, the fifth chapter. And before we dive in, um, we've been making announcements on social media, probably seen an email or two. I know it's been in the weekly update, but we're starting uh, two discipleship classes starting tomorrow, um, one for the ladies and one for the men. Uh, both classes will be offered uh, virtually. And so the ladies, you girl, will be studying the book of Matthew. And we've um, Dee is actually gonna offer it like in live setting um, virtually, you know, that's what I mean. It's like, she's going to be at her computer. You're going to be at your computer. She's going to offer that twice in one week. So Dee, thank you for doing that for us. Um, the first time is Mondays starting at 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And so for that's for some of you all that could take an early lunch break or others of you seem like it was a good time that might fit for you. And then the second one is Wednesday mornings from nine o'clock to 10 o'clock. Men, um, we're going to be in actually the book of the twelve which is the 12 minor prophets in the Bible. So we start at Hosea, end at Malachi. Uh, Pastor Sean will be teaching that, and that will take place in a live setting on Monday um, at seven o'clock to eight o'clock. And so you can go to our Facebook page. Um, we offer them via Microsoft Teams, uh, fairly easy format to follow. Each week you'll have a link that you can follow that'll put you in the group, and then we'll bring you into the class. And if you got any trouble, um, you can email my son because he knows more about it than I do. So you can email uh, info at thepointcommunity.net and we can help get you hooked up. All right, Mark chapter five, I've got 15 pages of notes, um, three cups of coffee, woke up at five this morning, ready to rock and roll. Um, and so whenever the timer goes off, I'm just gonna walk off the stage and Pastor Derek and the band will come up. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we, we beseech you. May our posture be the same posture as those that we're gonna read in this text. May we by faith, by faith and in faith fall at your feet as we see your power and your pity, Jesus. May it be reminders to us that we who are desperate can come to you in our desperation and you have all power and you're filled with compassion for those who do. Jesus, thank you. And we just see you high and lifted up in all of your glory for who you are, Jesus. Jesus. I understand the hymn, sweetest name, that we know is your name. Be near to us by the power of your spirit, through your word. In your name we pray, amen. Um, last week, what we started, uh, what we saw was we saw that Jesus is, was baptized and the Spirit descends upon Christ and he's anointed for ministry. And now Jesus, he's about 30 years old and Jesus will begin his earthly ministry here on this earth. And Jesus's earthly ministry is made up like kind of a two-pronged approach, if you will. Jesus will perform miracles and he will teach and that will be about it. I mean, he will cleanse the temple. He'll do a few other things, 
but the, but the majority of his ministry can be summed up by two actions. It's the action of working miracles and the action of his teaching. And so this week, we want to look at the miracles. Next week, Pastor Sean's going to preach on the teachings of Jesus. And so what we've, the text that we're going to look at is we're going to look at a trilogy of three miracles taking place. It feels like maybe on one day, this is occurring in Mark, the fifth chapter. So we're going to be in that in almost an entire chapter. And in that, we're going to see three different miracles. But really what they're telling is they're telling one story. They're telling the story of Jesus's ministry. They're serving as a, as a living illustration to us of Jesus's power and Jesus's uh, compassion that he has. They're, they're miraculous object lessons for us. And so it's, it's really one story and we're gonna break it down almost into four different acts. And so you can write this down if you want to just kind of help us navigate through the, our time together. Act one, we'll see a pitifully possessed man. In act two, what we'll see is we'll see a desperate dad and then we're gonna see Jesus being interrupted and he's interrupted by a sick woman in act three. And then act four, we'll see a dead daughter. So those are the four acts, three miracles that we'll see. Like I said, a trilogy of them. Let's dive in and let's start off with verse one of Matthew, the fifth chapter, I mean, Mark, the fifth chapter. And we see a pitifully possessed man. Text says they came to the other, to the other side of the sea, to the country of the uh, Gezerah, Gerasenes, the Gerasenes. Um, most of Jesus's three-year ministry will not be spent in Jerusalem, but it'll be spent out in the county. That's where Jesus kind of goes. He kind of leaves Jerusalem. He'll go down into Jerusalem occasionally and do ministry. But every time he goes to Jerusalem, he almost gets murdered there. He almost gets killed. And so he kind of stays out in the county until it's his time. He's also a little better received out there. So the text says he goes to the Gerasenes. And what the Gerasenes is, is the Gerasenes is the graveyard. And that's where he is. He's out in the tombs. It's a hilly location by the seashore. So there's a lot of caves and caverns there in order to store uh, dead bodies. I mean, it's pretty rocky there. They didn't bury the dead. They kind of stored them in these caves and caverns. So when you think of the Gerasenes, I want you to think of like a graveyard, but don't think of Sunset Gardens. I mean, it's not anything that nice. It's not anything that beautiful. It's not anything that fancy at all. I mean, it's actually would have been a, a kind of a, a, a rotten place, a dirty place, a, a dimly lit place, a dark place, if you will. It's probably um, carried over by vermin and disease. All kinds of things are here in that area. I mean, the, the embalming practices aren't as advanced as they are here. And so you, you can kind of just maybe think about that as you think about what happens here as Jesus approaches this, um, this little area. Verse two, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And so this man is the, he's pitiful. It's a heart-wrenching picture to see this man. Not only is the living conditions in which he's living in heart-wrenching and pitiful, but also in life. Mark says that he was uh, possessed of an unclean spirit, that he was demon-possessed. Later on in verses like 16 and 18, he will say that he's, uh, he's demonized. That means he's under the power. He's under the authority. He's under the influence of, a, of, a, of, a, of evil spirits, of demons. And demonization it can have a varying degree of influence. And this is a severe case. It's extreme here. His condition is so intense, so extreme that oftentimes he's needed to be bound up by chains. But as we'll see in verse four, they're to no avail. 
for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched himself from the chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. Notice what Mark says, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Kind of feel the tension building here. You know what's happening. Those of you who are familiar with the story, you can see it and feel it, but you have this kind of power play already from the beginning happening here. No one had the strength to subdue him. What is needed is someone with strength to subdue him. This man is desperate, a desperate situation. Verse number five, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's under psychological torment. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. Now, if you like to mark in your Bible, that would be a good place, I think, to mark is to notice in Mark chapter five, how many people fall down before Jesus. He ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now this would conjure up a picture to a Jewish audience. Be quite the picture, quite an admission. A Roman legion consisted of, let's get this, 6,000 footmen, 120 horsemen, and all of the technical personnel that would accompany them. So it was quite a picture. To the Jewish mind, a legion would have brought an image of great numbers, relentless strength. That's the picture here. Verse number 10, and then he begged him earnestly not to send him out into the country. Now there was a great herd of pigs and they were feeding there on the hillside. And they, the legion, begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This actually creates quite the stir out in the country, as you can imagine. I mean, we read that and we see that, and that's pretty impressive that Jesus has cast out these demons into a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs have run off of the cliff, and they've plunged to their own death there. We would see that as impressed, but I tell you who wasn't impressed, the guy that owned the pigs. He wasn't all that impressed. And so he creates a stir in the town and the townspeople, they're not all that impressed. And they come to Jesus and they want Jesus to leave. They say, Jesus, leave us, get out of town. But Legion comes, this man who was formerly known as Legion, he comes and he wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus tells him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him. So what once was a pitiful demon-possessed man is now a preacher as he proclaims what Christ has done. Jesus and his disciples, they board back onto the boat. They sail back across the sea. They get out of Dodge as they've been told to do. As they sail across the Sea of Galilee, the news travels faster than Jesus's boat. And when Jesus arrives on the other side of the seashore, now he's met by a great crowd. There's this huge crowd there coming to see Jesus and, and, it, and the power. They, evidently, they've heard the story and coming from the crowd as a desperate dad in act number two. We'll jump down and we're in verse number 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, oh, I got it, Jairus by name. 
And seeing him, he fell at his feet. So this is instance number two of a man falling at Jesus' feet. And he implored him earnestly. He's pleading with him, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well. Here's what we know about Jairus. He's a grown man. He's a ruler of the synagogue. This is a position of power and esteem. He's gonna be known around town. He's not a rabbi, he's not a teacher, he's not a scribe, but it says he's a ruler. He'd be maybe a picture of like the head deacon of the synagogue. Maybe he took, play, take, took care of the facility of the synagogue. Maybe he was in charge of security over the, over the facility or over the synagogue there. And now what we see is we see this man who's a man's man. And if you will, maybe think about Bill Jones if you want a picture of that. That's kind of a guy that's kind of the head deacon, you know, taking care of the facility, taking care of this. This is kind of the position this guy is in. And this grown, powerful man comes to Jesus, kneeling and pleading, something that would have been unheard of and unseen. That much emotion out of a man in that day would have just been, it wouldn't have been very popular, but all of his macho masculinity goes out the window when your little girl is desperately ill. And that's what we have here. And when Jesus heard the story, look at verse number 24, Jesus went with him. So you've got Jesus and his disciples and this crowd and and Jairus leading the way. And then it says here that uh, Jesus is interrupted in act number three, a sick woman and a great crowd followed him and thronged him. That's a bunch of people all around Jesus, pressing against Jesus. And then there was a woman, verse 25 who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And this woman is unnamed. She's not a person of power. It's almost like there's a a contrast happening here. You've got Legion who's named demonically. Then you've got this man uh, of renown that's named by name. And then you've got this woman who's unnamed. She has a medical condition, a discharge of blood. Maybe your text of scripture says an issue of blood. She's got something happening to her, maybe a, some kind of uncontrollable menstrual flow. Maybe that's what it's, the Bible's describing here. She's not very powerful, unlike Jairus. She's sick and she's weak. She's likely in pain, probably childless, probably maybe even husbandless. On top of this, she's, not, she's ceremonial un, ceremonially unclean that according to the book of Leviticus, that blood is a picture of the stain of sin. And so she's described as being ceremonially unclean. She would not have been allowed to attend temple. She wouldn't have been allowed to go to public worship. She can't go to the festival. She can't go to the synagogue. She's really not even supposed to be in crowds. She's an outcast. And this isn't something that's recent to her. She's been suffering like this for the past 12 years. And if the disease wasn't enough, Mark also tells us, look at verse number 26, and and who had suffered much under many physicians and she had spent all that she had and was no better and rather grew worse. There is an accompanying book called the Talmud. And in the Talmud, what you have is you have a um, it's Jewish writings that kind of, um, they're kind of expanding upon the law. And in the Talmud, it says this, that for a woman who has an issue of blood, she is to take the gum of Alexandria. All right, so take some gum out of a tree of Alexandria. That's what it's saying. The weight of a small silver coin. Also take with it some alum of the same weight, crocus of the same weight, 
and then let them be bruised together. So you're gonna muddle that up and then pour some, pour some wine in it and then give it to the woman that has the issue of blood. If this does not benefit her, then it says to, for her to take um, some Persian onions. I don't know what the difference is in a Baudelia onion and a Persian onion, but take some Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine and then give that to her to drink and then say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, then set her in a place where two roads meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. And then if that doesn't work, then it is recommended to the afflicted woman carry a barley corn that has been taken from the droppings of a white she-donkey. Can't even make this stuff up, right? It's nuts. And that's the kind of stuff that this woman has been through and maybe even worse. As you even think about like civil war and revolutionary days, you're just going back 200 and something years there. And you think about some of the, some of the ways that, that people would be tried to be healed. And now try to think about that now for 2000 years. Verse number 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus. She came up behind him. It's irony now. She's coming up behind him. Nobody's coming up behind her, scaring this lady. She's coming up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I love that picture. I love that picture of a sick, probably weak woman pushing her way in through the throng, in through the crowd. She doesn't care about public persona. She doesn't care about her disease. She doesn't care what others would think. She's trying to get to Jesus. I love that because as a pastor, I cannot tell you of the numbers of people that I've seen that they've allowed public persona, what others may think, other things such as that keep them from getting at Jesus. But this woman throws all of that out the window. She is desperate to get to Jesus and she gets to Jesus. And as she gets to Jesus, the text, I know it says that she touches and it's a beautiful song. She touches Jesus, but really the uh, understanding there, as it's saying, isn't just touching, but it's literally she clutches at Jesus. She grabs a hold of Jesus as the hem of his garment, or maybe it's a tassel that Jesus would have worn in his garment. She grabs a hold of that thing and she yanks on it, if you will. Charles Spurgeon said it was like she grabbed the rope of a bell and as she did, the power rung out. Ooh, that'll preach. I'd like one time to write something like that. What a beautiful picture. And that's what she does as she rings the bell, power reads it, uh, rings out. Verse number 25, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. What manner of man is this? And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately, he turned to the crowd and he said, who touched my garments? And he begins to ask the disciples the same question. Now this isn't to say that Jesus isn't in control of his miracles. This doesn't undermine Jesus's sovereignty or undermines Jesus knowing all things, his omniscience. What Mark is teaching us here is he's teaching us two things. He's teaching us about the nature of faith and he's teaching us about the nature of Jesus's faithfulness. Jesus responds to faith so reliably, so faithfully that it's almost a reflex for him. That's what Mark is teaching us. 
It's almost reflexive for him, for, for virtue, as the Bible says, virtue to go out of Jesus. Verse number 33, but the woman knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and she came trembling and she fell down before him. There's three. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's the only time in the Bible that Jesus will call someone daughter. It's a term of endearment that he's calling her here. That Jesus has it's been prophesied about God, that God is a father to the fatherless. And that's what, he's, that's what he's implying here. Daughter, daughter, woman. You know, that's the picture. But just don't forget about Jesus. Jesus is on a mission. He's got to go check on Jairus' daughter. So we get act number four, which is a dead daughter. Verse number 35, while he was still speaking. So he's speaking to this woman, this woman who's interrupted him, stopped him. While he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion and people were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. In verse 40, and they laughed at him. Like that's not, Jesus didn't tell him a joke there. That's bitter scorn. They're basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, you insensitive fool, she's dead. What are you doing? Dead, dead here. But then Jesus put them all outside and he took the child's father. Good grief. And mother and those who were with them. And he went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai which means little girl, I say to you, arise. The Talitha is a term of endearment. It means even more than just little girl. It actually would mean something like sweetheart. I imagine going in, <clears throat> Jesus going in much like we might go into our child's bedroom and lean over to their bed while they're taking an afternoon nap and we may just lean over and say, sweetheart, Get up. And here Jesus is facing the most devastating enemy known to the human race, death. And yet he possesses power over it. It's like waking up a little girl from her nap. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years old, years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he, was, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give the girl something to eat. You see that a lot when Jesus raises from the dead. Even Jesus' own resurrection, something about it must make you hungry. Give her something to eat. Now let's ask the question, why miracles? Why did Jesus choose to, to perform miracles? Why is his earthly ministry marked by miracles? Well, a couple of things that we can say about them. is Number one is Jesus' miracles, they authenticate 
his claim to deity. I mean, if you're gonna show up and say, hey, I'm God, you better show up and have a little bit of power to say that. There have been other people who arise and even in the future, there will be other, there will be people to come that will arise that will claim to have some kind of power that will claim to be from God and yet can they work miracles? And that's what we see here. Jesus is, he's authenticating his claim that he has made that he is God. He is the son of God. That what we even see here by the marks of Jesus's miracles is Jesus's miracles are happening there pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection, that Jesus is God. He has all of this power. It's not a power that will come in the future after Jesus's resurrection and he's but a ghost on this earth or looks like a ghost. You know, he's in bodily form, but it's not like that at all. Jesus here, I don't want to say that Jesus came back as a ghost. That's heresy. Jesus came back. It was a bodily resurrection, but there were differences in Jesus's body after his resurrection that are here, um, not here, that, that are here are um, not the same. Here, Jesus is full of power. Jesus possesses that kind of power because in his nature, he is God. God is by nature omnipotent. That is, he's full of power, unlimited power. That's what he has. And that's what we see in the miracles is God in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus is flexing his muscles. He's showing his strength. But the truth is it doesn't take a whole lot of strength. Look at the, think about the miracles that have happened in Mark 5. It's not like there's a lot of theatrics or fanfare. Not a whole lot happening here. The demons are relocated under the permission of Jesus. Hey, can we go here? You got my permission, now go. A 12-year-old ailment is dried up, seemingly apart from any effort at all. A daughter is raised from the dead like you would wake a child up from a nap. What this all points to is that Jesus has all power and all authority. All power and all authority has been given to Jesus and Jesus has power and Jesus has authority over it all. Jesus has power over demons. Jesus has power over disease. Jesus even has power over death. We say that to say how much more now if Jesus ascends ascends up into high where he's sitting on a throne, reigning and ruling and interceding. How much more does Jesus have power over all those things? That the ultimate picture of Jesus defeating demons and Jesus defeating disease and Jesus defeating death is when Jesus defeated our sin on the cross and in the resurrection. All of those things prove Jesus's deity. They should prove that Jesus is omnipotent. But not only do the miracles show us Jesus's power, they also show Jesus's pity. You say that again, not only do they show Jesus's power, but they also show Jesus's pity. They reveal Jesus's heart to the hurting. The nature of Jesus's miracles, they reveal the nature of Jesus's heart. And in all three of these miracles, what we see is we see, first of all, that Jesus is approachable. That Jesus cares for the weak. He cares for the forgotten. He cares for the unclean. He cares for the outcast. He cares for the tormented. And he also cares for the rich and he cares for the poor. I mean, he cares for the powerful. He cares for rulers of synagogue. He cares for the religious, the irreligious, the outcast. He cares for them all. Whoever will be made low in life circumstances, they can fall at Jesus's feet. We see here that Jesus is our human condition our suffering, our weaknesses, it touches the heart of Jesus. 
None of these teach us that Jesus is approachable, and it teaches us that Jesus is available. Jesus is so meek and he's so mild that the touch of one anonymous woman stops Jesus in his track. One anonymous woman with faith in a crowd halts the king of glory. And that is a glorious thought that the human predicament, our circumstances and our faith in Jesus, that they have the power to arrest God to stop him. Again, Jesus doesn't change when he gets into heaven. You wanna know what Jesus is like right now today? Look at how he was here on this earth. Jesus is available and he's approachable. Not only do they show us Jesus's power, not only do they show us Jesus's heart, but the miracles also show us not just the sufficiency of Jesus, but also the efficacy of faith. Jesus responds to faith. Now, I know in today's life and in today's world, I mean, probably could have said it a few hundred years ago, even the same, that faith can be misunderstood. When I say Jesus responds to faith, he does respond to our faith, not name it and claim it faith, not blind faith that pretends like circumstances aren't real, that ignores the realities of life, not faith that is uh, like, like the, the hand that rubs the genie's bottle and God pops out and you say, okay, God, give me these few things that faith, what is faith? Well, faith is humble confidence in God's nature and his character. Faith is more than just mere desperation. Although we see the desperate, we see the circumstances of life bringing people to their knees and that happens in our world every day. Every day people are, the circumstances of life, disease and death, maybe even possibly demon possession, they bring people to their knees every day, but not every knee that falls in desperation falls at Jesus's feet. It's not just faith in there, but it's faith in God. It's humble confidence in God's nature and God's character. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the verse six, that comes to mind. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You must believe and trust and have confidence in God's nature and his character, that God is a rewarder, that he seeks out to do good for us. It's the contrast of the desperation man finds. We find in our, in our desperate situations, in our desperate circumstances, we find that resolution and we find comfort in the character and the nature of God. Several years ago, uh, I don't know, 25 plus years ago, I got pretty indoctrinated in that word of faith movement. Some of you may be aware of that. Some of you may not. Praise God, I renounced that and got educated. And so I'm not disqualified from ministry, but I did. I got pretty steeped into the word of faith, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel message. Probably would have made a fine shucking and jiving prosperity gospel preacher, but God sovereignly and graciously pulled me out of there. Several years ago, I can vividly remember um, one of the local prosperity gospel preachers, the guy down at uh, Grace Fellowship, it's changed its name, Philip Derbers, the guy in the white suit. I remember him saying this. He was teaching out of Hebrews, the fifth chapter. I mean, I'm sorry, James, the fifth chapter where the book of James, the, uh, James writes and he says, is there, is there anyone sick? Um, is, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call on the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him uh, with oil in the name of the, in the, name of the Lord. It's something that we practice here from time to time. 
But look at verse number, in verse number 15, it says this, and the prayer of faith, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And I remember Philip Derber contrasting the prayer of faith with the way that we pray, the way that we pray for someone sick. We say, and Lord, if it be thy will, Lord, we believe that you're able, but Lord, if it be your will, and what Derber was doing was he was contrasting those things. He was saying faith is a positive assertion. You're asking and declaring and demanding, if you can, for God to do something. And you're believing he's going to do that. And the prayer of, uh, uh, Lord, if it be thy will, that undermines the prayer of faith. But I remember even there sitting there saying, wait a minute. Like, what's a greater form of faith? What's a greater prayer of faith to pray, Lord, if it be thy will, or to say, God, you got to do what I'm demanding for you to do. I mean, I would say the greater faith is for you to say, God, I'm gonna trust you. God, you're enough. God, I have humble confidence in you. I've got humble confidence in your nature and your character, despite my circumstances. Even if you don't heal me, even if my child does die, even if my grandmother dies, even if all of those things occur, still my faith, still my trust is in you. Lord, you are enough. That's real faith. That's real humble confidence in God. One of the most beautiful displays of faith one of the most beautiful affirmations of faith actually occurred in the, uh, in the book of Daniel. We didn't get a chance really to preach it, but there's the three young Hebrews that are exiled. They're in Babylon. Now you got a little bit of, you know, kind of hopefully what's going on when we talk about Daniel. But you got these exiles, these Hebrews by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, evil king, he commands anytime that the flute is played, anytime you hear music, you're to bow your knee to me. And these boys say, sorry about your luck, King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't bow down for nobody except for Jesus, right? Or for God. And so what they do, they arrest them. And then they tell them, listen, if you don't bow your knee when the, when the trumpet sound, when the lute is, flute is played, right? If you don't bow your knee at that time, then we're gonna throw you into the fiery furnace. And this is what they say in Daniel 3, 17. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Here's what we believe about God. If you throw us in our fiery furnace, this is what we believe. Number one, we believe that God is able. He's got power to deliver us from this burning fiery furnace. Number two, they said, and he will deliver us. Not only do we believe he's able to deliver us, we believe that God is willing to deliver us. He would love to do it, O king. But verse 18, but if not, but even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we're not gonna serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And that is faith. That is real faith. Do we pray for miracles? Do we ask for miracles? Absolutely. Does God still work miracles? Absolutely, he does. I believe that. Oftentimes I will pray and I will say, we're not ashamed to ask you, God, to work a miracle. Now, is that God's primary means? No, his ministry changes when he's in heaven. He's got a heavenly ministry now. His heavenly ministry isn't primarily the ministry of miracles that we think about here, miracles of healing, miracles of raising dead. His primary ministry right now is salvation that he's bringing. But nevertheless, we believe that God, sometimes he intervenes. Sometimes God breaks through. Sometimes God graciously gives a miracle. And we believe that about him. We believe that he's able to do it. We believe that he's willing to do it. But the prayer of faith says, even if you do not do that, God, we still believe that you are good and we still believe that you are enough. 
God doesn't prove himself by his miracles. Not today, not now. God doesn't authenticate anything by his miracles. God proves himself by the gospel, by a bloody cross and by an empty grave. That is what proves God and his salvation. Today, as I said, his primary ministry is the ministry of salvation. In fact, in fact, these, illustra- these miracles, they illustrate the nature of Jesus's, of Jesus's future ministry. They illustrate the, the greatest need. See, the truth is, and I think that most people don't believe this, but here is the truth, that our primary need is not physical, but spiritual. No matter what the circumstances may be, your primary need, why is Jesus's ministry right now, the minister, primary ministry, the ministry of salvation? Because that's your primary need. Even in the most desperate of circumstances, your primary need is the need of, it's not physical, but it's spiritual. And the miracles, they're living illustrations that teach us the nature of salvation. That in salvation, Jesus sets us free from demonic enslavement. That all throughout the Bible, but sin, is, sin is taught and the picture of it is entanglement. Whatever addiction, whatever problem, whatever other sinful uh, entanglement that you may find yourself in, Jesus has the power to break that. In salvation, Jesus heals us from the disease of sin. That unclean and defiled things, they're made clean when by faith they come into contact with Jesus. I know this woman's disease isn't a contagious disease. I understand that. To see Jesus healing someone with a contagious disease, you could see this in uh, in Mark chapter one. One of the first healings Jesus makes is Jesus performs a, a healing of a leper. But this woman is ceremonially unclean. Let me ask you, what happens when an unclean thing touches a clean thing? Well, the thing that's clean becomes unclean, right? You don't take your kids to, when we had Kids Point, you don't take your kids into Kids Point and say, hey, my kid wasn't feeling very well. I'm really hoping that that the other kid's wellness rubs off on my kid, right? Maybe some of you do that, but that's not what you're supposed to do. If you sneeze over a pot of soup, you know, you've contaminated the pot of soup. That's just the way that it works. It doesn't matter the number of, of, of particles or molecules that's gone into it. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of what was unclean touching something that's clean. We could say that about all sorts of illustrations, but we see in this woman is the very opposite. Someone who is sick and someone who is unclean, touching Jesus and Jesus making them clean. And that's what Jesus, Jesus does on the cross. Jesus absorbs our uncleanness. He absorbs the disease of sin from us and he takes it to the cross and he makes us whole and he makes us clean again. In salvation, Jesus raises us from the dead. As Paul will write in Ephesians chapter two, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. See, our greatest need again, even in death, our greatest need isn't physical, but spiritual. The man or woman that dies peacefully in their sleep at 100 years old, or at 100 years old dies from, from skydiving, or from rock climbing, or however they may die, that person who dies and dies without Jesus, they lose everything. And the believer who is snatched away at the prime of their life, the truth is they still have everything to look forward to because of Jesus. Then in Jesus, we see 
Jesus's miracles are living illustrations that teach us the nature of salvation. What Jesus has come to do, that Jesus has all power and yet he lays that power down. We see Jesus's heart, a heart that heals and a heart that, that, that is compassionate. Even as Jesus goes to the cross and is at the cross, we see Jesus's heart as he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see Jesus's power as he's resurrected again made alive so that you and I, by our faith in him, we too might be made alive. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you. that as we read in the last um, sermon in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, as Malachi wrote, there would be one, the son of righteousness, who would rise with healing in his wings. And this is you, Jesus that Jesus, whatever may ail us, physically or spiritually, and we have faith in you. Our healing isn't the object of our faith. You are the object of our faith. May we trust you that all of your ways and all of your plans for us, that they're good and they're meant to sanctify us and to prosper us and to, to bless us even, Lord. And even in the midst and of tough situations, Lord. Lord, may we trust in you in those things, Father. And Father, may we find in you one who has everything and is so willing to give it to us, Lord. Lord, we praise you and we give thanks to you for it. In your name we pray, amen.